Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Let's read Galatians chapter 2 now. We're going to read, as we've been doing, verses 11 to 21, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you for this time. And we ask very specifically this morning that you will help us to get a sense of just how amazing and how wonderful this gift is that we have been given that we call justification. Father, we don't even begin to understand the depths of our own sin. We think we understand who we are. We think we, we know ourselves, that we know our sin, that we know our own depravity, but the reality is, is we don't. We, we may have a, a sense, but, but we're nowhere close to understanding the fullness of it, and yet here you are. You You understand it perfectly. You know every sin. You know every sinful act, motive, desire, word, thought, deed. You've known everything from our past, and you already know everything from our future, for our future. And yet, your word tells us that in eternity past, knowing full well all that we would be and all that we would do, you chose us. You, you sent your son, you planned to sacrifice him in order to make us right with you. And so this is an, an amazing truth and one that I hope this morning we will begin to, to just understand afresh and anew, help us to see it, to, to understand it, to appreciate it, and then to go out and live in the freedom of it. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you grew up in church, it is possible that you, or very probable even, that you have heard someone make a statement kind of like this in relation to the gospel itself. Maybe they said that you can't appreciate the good news until you understand the bad news. Now, for some reason, you're not familiar with that statement. Uh, Let me take just a moment to explain it. And to do so, I will ask you a question. Where in the world does our English word gospel come from? Now, you might hear that question and be like, well, that's an easy one. It comes from the Bible, right? Because it's in the Bible over and over and over again. In fact, we call the very first uh, four books of our New Testament the Gospels. And if that is your answer, it is a terrific answer. Great one and absolutely wrong. Sorry to tell you. Uh, Yes, today we do find the English word gospel in our English translations of the Bible. And yes, we do refer to those first four books as being the Gospels. But that is not where the word itself came from. To understand where it came from, we have to go back and recognize that behind our English word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. And I did have a cool Greek font for this, but it didn't translate, (laughs) no pun intended, to that computer there, and so we don't have it. Uh, Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and so as Paul is sitting down to put pen to paper, he and others, he's not writing the word gospel. That's an English word. He's writing this word here, euangelion, and it means literally good news because it is the Sunday before Christmas. I will use a good Christmas example. I will uh, remind you of that section in Luke chapter 2 where the angels are coming to appear to the shepherds out in the field, and I will pick up reading in verse 10 with verses you know very well. The angels said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you, and here's our word, good news, euangelion, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And what is that good news? It is that unto you this day in the city of David, there's a shepherd who has been born and it's none other than Christ the Lord. Now the translators could have written here and it would have been completely accurate. I bring you gospel of great joy. That would be completely legitimate because it's the same exact word, but none of us would like that because it's not how we've read it for our entire lives and no one can mess with this passage as we all well know. Uh, The word euangelion was used simply to refer to any kind of message or report that would bring joy, that would, that would make you glad. So it's things like, you know, we won the war, or, you know, they're getting married, or camping has been outlawed forever. All of those things, yay, would be examples of euangelion, of, of very good news. Now, of course, if you spoke Koine Greek, you wouldn't need anyone to explain all of this to you because you would read that word and instantly you would go, oh, that means good news. I totally get that. But since none of us in here do, all of us need translations, right? We need something to help us with that word. And so as you think back or look back through the history of, of translations of the Bible, we see that when the Bible was translated into Latin for the first time, they actually tried to take this Greek word here and just sort of transliterate it into a Latin form. And so they came up with the word evangelium. What words do we get from evangelium? Evangelistic, evangelical, these kinds of words, evangelism, these words all come from that Greek form. And as you can see, they're kind of similar to the one above it. It's a transliteration, meaning they're just trying to copy the letters down and give it the same meaning. Later, though, when it was translated in Latin, a different phrase was used. They actually tried to translate it this time. They called it bona annunciata. I think that's right. And and that's good news. Bona means good. Annunciata means message. You can hear the word announce in annunciata, kind of. It's the same concept, a good announcement, a good message. 
As the word then moved into English, particularly Old English, they weren't going to use Latin terms, so they used an Old English term, and that Old English term was the word goad spell. And it's a long O sound here, goad spell. Goad meaning good and spell meaning story. So a good story, a good news. But as you can see, goad looks a lot like God. And eventually the long O sound kind of dropped off and it became God's spell, as in God's story. And eventually the D and the L were dropped and we got to the word we now know today, which is gospel. Now that's a very long explanation to help you understand where the word gospel comes from. It doesn't come from your Bible. It comes from a mispronunciation of an old English word that became so commonly accepted that that became our word of choice. When we translate the Bible today, we translate the word euangelion as gospel. But quite frankly, it doesn't matter if you call it pickles or anything else, right? Rose by any other name, it smells just as sweet. As long as you understand that the word gospel means good news, you're totally fine. Now, back to that saying that you may or may not have heard before, that you can't appreciate the good news until you understand the bad news. What it's trying to communicate is that you cannot understand the good news of Jesus until you really recognize and understand the bad news about yourself. And that was whether or not you realized it last Sunday, what I was trying to do with that entire message, was trying to help us understand the bad news. Today is part two of a two-part sermon. If you weren't here last week, sorry, but it's on the subject of justification. This is also our fourth week looking at these, what I've called foundation stones from this biblical and theological argument that Paul is laying out for us here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Each of these stones is a single concept that I think we need to understand in order to get the full significance of what Paul is trying to say here. And as I showed you last time in verse 16, there are three words or phrases that are each repeated three times here in this text. The first is the word justified. You see it there three times behind me. The second is the phrase works of the law. And the third is the phrase or some variation of the phrase faith in Christ. And we took the first of these, this word justification, and began looking at it last time as our third foundation stone. Now, as you may recall, the word justification has a definition. I gave it to you as this, that it refers to an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. And I told you it was the second half of that definition that seems to get the most attention in the, in the New Testament, so that's the one we started with. The word justify in and of itself simply means to declare righteous. It does not mean to make you righteous per se, not the word itself. It simply means to officially pronounce someone as being righteous, kind of like a, a judge or a jury declaring someone not guilty at the end of the trial. Do you remember that analogy from last week? Whether or not the person really is guilty or innocent or whatever the case may be doesn't really matter. They may in fact be innocent or they may in fact be guilty. But at the end of the trial, if they are declared not guilty, they are to be both viewed and treated as being not guilty from that moment on. Now, in our case, to say that you and I can be justified or declared righteous by God, well, that presupposes a couple of things. Do you remember this? First, it presupposes that there really is a God. I said I wasn't going to defend that last week, and I won't do it again today. I trust you will accept that. 
And secondly, it presupposes that this God views us as being guilty of something. And the question before us last week was, are we? Are we really guilty of something before God? And the answer to that question, biblically speaking, was yes. That God views all of us, as all of humanity, as being guilty of what? Sin. Thank you. Okay, first service didn't get that right at all. I don't know how they missed that one, but whatever. You guys are better than that. You know, I, I don't remember which service I said it in. I said it in one and didn't say it in the other, so I decided to say it to both today. Sin is not just any old word. It, it is a loaded term. It is a theological term. It's not the same as saying you made a mistake or you've just, you know, maybe done something you shouldn't even that. It, it, it speaks of us somehow failing to perfectly live up to God's standard. For example, in the Old Testament law, God laid out for his people what it was exactly that he wanted them both to do all the time and then to never do any of the time. And so that means then in order to be perfectly righteous in God's eyes, one would have to, in theory, not exactly, but I'll let it go for today, in theory, one would have to do everything that God commanded all of the time from birth until death, and never one time do even a single thing that he said, don't do. That's what you would have to do to be perfectly righteous in God's eyes in theory. Which means then, for us, if there has ever been a moment in our entire life where we have not done every single thing that God commanded us to do, or we have even one time done a single thing that he commanded us not to do, then we are, by definition, sinners. We are criminals in God's eyes who have broken God's laws. And as we ended last time, this is pretty much where we landed, that all of us, all of humanity, we are sinners. We have all, not just once, but repeatedly and constantly, from our earliest days up until now and will until death, constantly not do all the things we're supposed to do and constantly do many, if not all, the things we're not supposed to do. We sin in both directions on a regular basis, and we always have. And this is where we're going to begin to pick back up from last time. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, um, <laughs> I, I realized that we as humans, we are, we are interesting beings. We really are. We are, we are hypocrites. And, and just about every sense of the term, particularly when it comes to how we want to view ourselves and sin and God and this whole conversation. So imagine with me for a moment that uh, you've been invited over for dinner to someone's house today, okay? After the service, you're heading over, and uh, man, you're excited. You know the people. They're really good cooks, whatever, and you're going to go, and you're going to sit down. And uh, so you stand around the kitchen. You talk for a few minutes like you normally would when you go to someone's house for dinner. Finally, the moment comes, and everyone sits around the table, and out comes the host or the hostess with, I don't know, like a, like a chicken pot pie. I love chicken pot pie, right? So there it is. I put it on the table. And man, it's like flaky, crusty, you know, brown on top and it's bubbling. And oh, it looks so good, right? Your mouth is now watering. You're so excited for dinner. Some of you right now are excited for dinner because I'm saying all of this. And then the host or hostess sits down and, and right as you're about to pray maybe for the meal, he says or she says, hey, listen, <laughs> I got to tell you something. Uh, just for full disclosure's sake, just I, I kind of feel bad about this, but I want you to know, when I was making this, I got a little queasy and, and I threw up. And some got in the, the chicken pot pie. <laughs> Sit on that one for just a moment. 
You know, how, how exactly would you respond to that if you were in that? I, mean, I want you to think about it. I mean, put yourself there. You think about this. How, would you be like, oh, that's totally fine. I totally don't mind. I mean, I'm good with that. No issue to me at all. Pass the plate. Let's dig in. Of course not, right? No one in their right mind would ever respond like that to that kind of statement, nor would they ever ask this question, well, how much got in? Like, are we talking a, a cup? Tablespoon? Is there any threshold here that you're okay with? And if you say yes, don't answer out loud because we're never coming to your house again for dinner. I promise you, if anyone, actually someone told me after last service that they would have been okay with it. I was like, oh, I'm never coming to your house for dinner. I won't tell you who that was for your sakes. But, right, like, there's no threshold here that we're okay with. There's, there's no way. What, what would we want done with this meal, right? We would, like, out. Get it out of my sight. Like, I can't even look at it. Just the thought would be almost be enough to make me sick. I even questioned whether or not I should use this illustration, but I thought, now, if people feel sick, that actually is about how you should feel. You would want that thing gone, trashed, out of here, never see it again. That scenario is so revolting to us that it's really hard for us to imagine it. And yet, when it comes to how we want to imagine God responding to our own sin, we, we want to picture him as being either A, totally okay with it, right? Like, oh, you know, God, like, who cares about their sin? I don't care about sin. God's up in heaven just like, whatever, sin's fine with me. Or B, we want to imagine that God has some sort of threshold with which he's okay. Well, how much sin are we talking in their case? Oh, I, you know, I know them. It's not that much sin. I'm okay with that amount of sin. May I suggest to you a really crazy-sounding idea that according to the Scriptures, our God feels infinitely, infinitely more revolted by our sin than you or I would feel towards vomit in the chicken pot pie. And now let that one go through your mind for a moment. Whatever amount of revulsion you felt to my illustration, multiply at times infinity and understand that that's how God feels about sin. The classic passage on this is found in a book of the Bible. I know all of you read probably every week, right? The book of Habakkuk. In chapter 1, verse 13, Habakkuk makes the comment that God is so pure, so holy, so righteous that he cannot even look upon sin. Like he, it has to get out of his sight. He can't, he can't have it. He's not okay with it. There's not a threshold that he's okay with where he can take a little bit and not any more than that. Any sin, even just one sin, is enough to make us completely unacceptable to God. But of course, as we just acknowledged a moment ago, all of us have sinned way more than one time, right? We are constantly, continuously, repeatedly sinning. We are sinners through and through. And folks, that is the bad news, right? That, this, what I said at the beginning is you have to understand the bad news in really to un, order to understand the good news. That, that's the bad news that, that God cannot, cannot stand our sin. Actually, there's a little bit more than that. It, it actually gets worse. And what I'm referring to there is the fact that, that God not only cannot stand our sin, but has to punish it. He we're under his wrath and, and deserving of eternal punishment, but I can't go there today. I don't have enough time, and so we're just going to have to move on in our understanding of justification. This is, the, this is the bad news. 
that we're sinners through and through, and this makes us not right with God. So then the question before us now is, how then can we be made right with God? How, how can this happen? And the answer is now back to our word, justification. Despite our clear and obvious guilt, we need God, the righteous judge, to declare all of us righteous, to pronounce us in his court as being not guilty, even though we would all, I hope, freely admit that we are, in fact, guilty. What we need is a pardon, a divine pardon, an eternal pardon. And this is what we receive through justification. As you look through the New Testament, there are three, I mean, at least this, there's probably more, but it'll serve for today. There are at least three main ways in which the New Testament writers talk about or describe our justification. And before I walk through them, please understand, these aren't three different types of justification. They're just three different ways of thinking about it, almost like three different perspectives from which you can view it and understand it. Sort of like you could maybe think about me in three different ways. You can see me from the perspective of as being your pastor. Or you could think about me as from the perspective of being a father to my children. Or you could maybe think about me from the perspective of a yet-to-be-discovered uh, male model. Any of these are true. All of them equally are true. But it's just one me, right? You get that idea. It's just one me. You're just looking at me from three different ways. Well, the New Testament writers often talk about justification from these three different perspectives, all of which are true. First, they talk about it from the perspective of grace from the perspective of grace. And I'll give you just one New Testament example for this, though you could find many others if you went to look, but this will do here in Paul, uh, Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. In the context, he's talking about how all of humanity, right, all Jews and Gentiles together are sinners, all in need of this kind of justification. And so he says it, for all, both Jews and Gentiles have sinned. And all have fallen short. Jews and Gentiles alike have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of them, both Jews and Gentiles, can be justified, there's our word, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this pardon, this justification that we can receive is not one that you or I can earn or deserve. And I get that most of you probably understand that. As sinners... As criminals in God's court, what we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is death, is, is, is judgment. Remember another one of Paul's most famous lines from the book of Romans, the wages of sin is what? Death, okay. What, what, is, what is a wage? A wage is a paycheck. The paycheck you get, the thing that you earn or deserve from your sin is nothing short of of eternal death, but now think of the rest of that statement, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing you have to understand is that we cannot earn this pardon, this justification. It is a gift of grace. And folks, this might like shock some of you depending on how you've grown up or the kind of homes you've lived in or whatever the case may be, but um, this idea that justification is not something that you can earn or deserve is is really hard for a lot of people to understand and accept. It's really hard. Because as strange as it may sound to your ears or to mine, there are a lot of people around us, quite frankly, who want, they want to earn their own righteousness before God. And so rather than being in God's debt, 
so to speak. They want to view God as being in their debt, as if God owes them. Hey, God, I'm so good, you owe me righteousness. They want to feel that way. They want to see themselves, excuse me, they don't want to see themselves as being hopeless and helpless. What they want to see themselves as, as being capable and self-sufficient. I, I won't develop this. I'll just make the comment and we keep moving. This is just an expression, another expression of man's rebellion against God. And so justification by grace, something that you do not earn or deserve, is not something that they want to accept and yet, I would point out to you that this idea, it's either absolutely true or it's absolutely false. There's, there's no middle ground on this point. Either you can earn your justification or you cannot. It's either true or false. And how you view this will directly impact the next perspective that we see here. Secondly, the New Testament writers talk about justification from the perspective of faith. Okay, so we've seen it from grace now we're going to see it from faith. And as we, all we need to do here is go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and see a good example of this. Though, again, we could go to numerous places throughout the New Testament to see the same thing. That here, Paul is viewing justification as being by or through faith. If the first perspective tells us what justification is, that it is a free gift given by God to man, something they cannot earn or deserve, this second perspective helps us understand to whom the gift of justification is given. It is given to those who have faith. And as I said, this perspective flows directly out of the first one. I mean, let's just think about this logically for a moment. If you believe, if you believe somehow that you can earn or deserve your righteousness before God, then it obviously follows then that there is something that you can either be or do that God will accept, right? I mean, that's just a direct connection. If you think you can earn it, there must be something, something about who you are or about what you've done that God is willing to accept. However, if you believe that there is nothing you can do to earn or deserve your salvation, that it is a gift freely given by God, then you have to come to recognize that there is nothing that you can do to receive this gift apart from just humbly and gratefully accepting it. And we call that humble, grateful acceptance of God's gift faith. And you see this very distinction here in verse 16. Paul is contrasting two different ways in which someone could, either in theory or in fact, be justified by God. On the one hand, you have the person who thinks they can somehow earn their justification, and so to be worthy of it, they try to obey the works of the law. That was who Paul used to be, remember? Here's a guy who used to think, hey, I can keep the Torah perfectly. I can be blameless in my observance of the Old Testament law. He believed also then that that blameless observance of the law would make him acceptable to God. That by doing this, God would, would have to view him as justified. This was Paul's old perspective, we could call it. On the other hand, you have a person who now recognizes that they cannot earn their justification, and so all they can do is put their faith in Christ. This is Paul's new perspective, if you would. He now realizes that no one can be justified by the law, but only through faith in Christ. It's an, it's an either-or. That's your only two options. 
Either you attempt to earn your pardon from God by perfectly doing everything God commands from birth until death, which no one outside of Jesus ever did, or you can accept the free pardon of God by turning away from your own efforts and trusting only in his son. It's one or the other without mixing, which ironically is what the whole letter of Galatians is about. Now, before I move on to this third and final perspective, let me just say there's one more piece of this specific point that I would love to address today but can't because of, but, but can't because of time. However, I will come back to it, I think, sometime in the new year. And it's a question that I'm just going to throw out to you, okay? And I'm not throwing this out to you lightly either. This is a question I remember when I first wrestled through, um, man, it, it kicked my butt. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Like, it was, a, it was a tough question, but one that once I finished wrestling through, I was like, whoa. It, and it opened up my eyes to a better understanding of just of my own salvation, of salvation in general. So I'm going to give it to you, and then maybe we'll come back to it here in a few weeks in January. The question is this. What kind of faith justifies us? What kind of faith justifies us? And if you're sitting there going, I didn't realize there was more than one kind of faith. Well, I can guarantee you there is. I can just point to James 2 as a very easy and obvious example where James is discussing uh, this with his readers. And he says, hey, look, you believe that that God is one. You, You believe these things. That's great. The demons also believe and they tremble. The demons have faith. They're not saved. So what, what kind of faith saves us? And here's your hint. Here's your passage to go look at and wrestle through. It's Romans chapter 4. Read all of Romans 4 and focus in very specifically on what Paul has to say about Abraham there in that passage. That is if you're interested in doing so. If not, just wait a few weeks and we'll come back to it. Anyway, moving on. Finally, the third perspective that you see the New Testament writers talk about justification from is from the perspective of Christ, the perspective of Christ. And you see that here even in Galatians 2. This is not just faith in nothing. It's not just like faith as as an idea. It is specifically faith in Christ. Uh, Since I've already used this example, let me give you another one outside of Galatians. Uh, This is from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. He says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been, and here's our idea, justified by his blood. His blood. Since we have now, therefore now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And this is where we come back now to the first half of that definition that I gave you earlier, that justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. You know, how and when did that happen? Well, it happened on the cross. That's what he's referring to here when he talks about the blood. It's happening on the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin, right, on himself. And God, the righteous judge, doesn't simply ignore sin. He now pours out all of his anger and wrath and and, and punishment directly on Jesus because of our sin. He pours it out on his sinless son. And now Jesus takes our curse. He takes our punishment. He takes the wrath that was rightly ours. He dies in our place, right? He dies for us. All of these 
these phrases and terms. This is, this is talking about a, an amazing transaction. And in that moment, a spiritual transaction occurs which has eternal consequences because now, as a result of that moment, God can now view us as being forgiven and also view us because we have faith, with, uh, faith in Christ and are now one with him. He can now view Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Folks, all of that, that was like a million big ideas, right? All of that happens in just a few hours, so to speak, upon Calvary. We took time when we were going through Mark trying to understand that. So thus, Paul here can say, we are justified by his blood. The blood is like a picture almost of the entire scene of what happens on that moment. And we are now not simply declared righteous, though that is true as well, we're actually made righteous in and through the death of Jesus for us and anyone now who places their hope in that transaction and Jesus' death on their behalf is justified by God. Now, you know, what's the result of all of this? What's the result of justification? What do you get out of it? Well, you might say forgiveness. And that's right. You, on this one, I don't have to tell you you're wrong. You're right about that one. We get forgiveness from our justification, but I... That answer just isn't strong enough. Let me, let me state it a little more strongly. Listen carefully to this sentence. The result of justification is the complete, total, and eternal pardon of all our sin through the love, mercy, and grace of God shown to us in the person and work of Christ. Let me repeat it. Listen very carefully. The result of justification is the complete, total, an eternal pardon of all our sin through the love, mercy, and grace of God shown to us in the person and work of Christ. And if that statement isn't for some reason like striking you or doesn't move you, maybe this will help a little bit. What shall we say then to these things? And as Paul begins this part here at the end of Romans 8, he's referring to our justification and its many results. It's many blessings and benefits. What are we going to say to all of these things? If God, the judge, is for us, who can be against us? I mean, we're talking about the judge, right? If the judge is on your side in a court case, it doesn't matter what comes. Who could possibly be against you? You've already got the judge, right? The judge is on your side. He, the judge, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Wait, wait. The, the judge made the way for me, the criminal, to be right? Yes. That's how on your side the judge is. The judge gives his own son, sacrifices him so that you don't have to be punished. So if he's willing to do that, how would he not then also, with his son, graciously give us all things? Who then is going to bring a charge? Who then is going to bring a charge against God's elect? You think that if the judge has justified you, there's anyone now who can come and be like, yeah, wait, wait, sir, excuse me, you don't know this about them. This isn't any judge. This is a judge who knew everything about us perfectly from the very, very beginning, who knew everything we would do wrong. We've never fooled him once. And so if that judge has justified us, who? Who now could bring a charge? Who now can condemn? Christ Jesus died. It's not as if the punishment's still hanging out there somewhere to be poured out. 
It's gone. <laughs> it was poured out. Christ died. He took the condemnation and then get this. And if that's not enough, now he's risen. And what is he doing now? He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Well, okay then, is there anything in, in maybe the external world, creation that could separate us? No. Can tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Look, this stuff happens. He recognizes it. Verse 36, we're, we're killed all the day long. We're like sheep for the slaughter. Hey, there's no denying that, that God's people are attacked. I get that. But can execution take away this justification I have? No. Can punishment, can, can danger? No, no, no. There is nothing in this external world. In fact, he says it in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, what about, what about in the spiritual realm? Anything there? Well, no, neither death, life, angels, rulers, and this isn't talking about earthly rulers, talking about heavenly rulers, that kind of an idea. Nothing in the present, nothing to come, no power, no height, no depth. And if there was any last question, not anything else in all of creation, and remember that all of creation is anything outside of God himself. You've got God himself in all of creation. <laughs> so there is nothing else that could possibly separate us from the love of God that we have found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do, do, do you get it? Do you get what he's saying here? The basis of our hope, the basis of our confidence is that the divine judge of the universe has declared you and I once and for all not guilty. You've stood before the judge and he has rung the gavel not guilty, which means then all our sins, past, present, future, gone. Perfectly, eternally, completely, totally gone because Jesus took our place, paid for our sins, and gave us his own righteousness in exchange. Not guilty, perfect, eternal, divine pardon. Pardon. You were guilty. He declared you not guilty out of his own love in the only court that matters and before the only judge that matters. And so now who can charge? Who? No one. <laughs> who can condemn? No one. There's no one left. Christ has died. He's risen again. And there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because we have been justified by God through Christ, we are now both viewed and treated as being not guilty of all sin forevermore. And folks, in this, we rejoice. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we come because we don't know even how sometimes to process this. We, we, it's so hard for us because we don't even recognize the, the real condition in which we were. We were so sinful that you couldn't even look upon us. You... We were detestable to you, revolting to you. You were so pure, so holy. And yet now you, the judge, has made a way for disgusting, repulsive sinners to be made right. You gave your own son. And you knew, you knew fully who we are. There's nothing that is hidden before your eyes. You've seen every sin, everything from the moment we were born to the day we die, it was all future to you. You understood all of it. And yet you gave your son still. And now we stand in Christ, not guilty. No more fear of wrath. No more fear of condemnation. 
No more charges that can be brought. It's all been paid. And so I thank you for the great grace that you have given us, that we have received. We've not earned this. We've not deserved it. You have given it to us. And we humbly this morning, gratefully accept it. Thank you for it. Rejoice in it. This is our hope. And so, God, we love you and ask that we live our lives then as a living act of gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.